You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, I want to look at the Gender Pay Gap Information Bill. This is a piece of legislation that we have talked about on and off over the past 18 months, and indeed it's been coming for much longer than that. At last, we now have a draft bill, so today I want to look at what that involves, how it will work, and the steps that you need to take as employers now to get ready for it. And as you'll see, there's quite a lot to be done. Let me turn now to the main topic for today's review, and that's the draft Gender Pay Gap Information Bill. But where I want to start here today is, first of all, looking at what is the gender pay gap and how will this legislation work and address it. To put it simply, the gender pay gap is the difference between what men and women are paid on average in any given organisation. It's not calculated by reference to a comparison between male and females doing the same work. It's not based on the concept of like pay for like work. So in that respect, the gender pay gap and equal pay or the entitlement to equal pay for like work are completely different concepts. Insofar as the gender pay gap is driven by the salaries that employees, male and female, are paid in a given organisation, what it does measure, however, is the extent to which there is equal representation from both males and females at each level within an organisation. Though typically the focus is really on at senior level to see whether females are sufficiently representative at that level. To illustrate how this works, if you have a company where the majority of the senior management team or the board members are male, well then it follows that the majority of the high-paying roles are occupied by males. So the average salary for males in that company compared to females is going to be higher and therefore that company's gender pay gap is going to be quite high, a negative for the employer. In contrast, if you have a company where there are an equal number of males and females at senior level, and at lower levels within the organisation, you have a relatively equal distribution of males and females, well then the average male salary compared to the average female salary is going to be much closer, so that company's gender pay gap is going to be a lot lower. Of course, this is all based on mathematics, so you do have to understand what drives the numbers and what makes up the workforce. So, if you use my last example, if you had an equal distribution of male and female at senior level, but there was only two or four senior roles, well then, it may just mean you have one or two senior females in the higher paid roles. Depending on the overall workforce, that may not be enough to drive the overall numbers. So you could quite conceivably have a scenario where you have a group CEO who is female, but that company still has quite a high gender pay gap. It's all about the numbers at the end of the day. A critical point in understanding this legislation is that a gender pay gap of itself is not unlawful. And as you'll see, most employers probably will have a gender pay gap. However, once you have identified your gender pay gap, the focus then turns to identifying the causes of the gender pay gap. And that may show up practices that are unlawful or in breach of the employment equality legislation. For example, the gender pay gap may be caused by a tacit practice within the organisation of not hiring female employees into particular roles, in particular management roles, if there's a view that they are at an age in their career where they may be beginning to start a family. Similarly, the gender pay gap in a given organisation may be driven by unconscious bias in the manner in which the employer goes about its recruitment, 
which results in a much greater number of male employees being hired into critical or higher paying roles than female employees, even if not intentional. From what I've seen of the research in this area and having worked with clients who have been through this process already in the UK and the US, it does seem that almost every country and indeed every employer will have some degree of gender pay gap. But the critical point here is the degree of that gender pay gap and what's causing it. To give you a little bit of sense of this, Ireland at the moment, even though we have a higher number of female graduates coming out of universities than male graduates, as of 2018, had a gender pay gap of 13.9%. That's in contrast to Belgium, which has a surprisingly low gender pay gap of 3%. But that's because they have been conscious of this and proactively trying to address it for a much longer period than we have. To drill into this a little bit further and look at it on a sectoral approach, in the UK, the sector that has the highest gender pay gap is the financial services sector. And if you think about that, it's perhaps not that surprising for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as a sector, it is quite a traditional area of the economy. And therefore, it's a sector in which you will still have the vast majority of senior level roles occupied by males. So the average male salary is going to be higher than the average female salary. Likewise, and this goes to the numbers, it's a sector in which people at the very top can often earn many multiples of the average salary within the overall organisation. So as a result, the salary range or the distance between the lowest paid employee and the highest paid employee in that given organisation is going to be much higher. And this distorts the numbers. By contrast, the sector that has the lowest gender pay gap in the UK last year was the accommodation and food services sector. And again, if you think about it, that makes sense because it's a low margin sector. So therefore a sector within which even at management level, the average salaries are not going to be that high. So the salary range from the lowest to the highest won't be as broad. So as a result, the final gender pay gap number isn't going to be as high. The concept behind this legislation is that by requiring employers to shine a light on what their gender pay gap is, it will in turn require them to actually identify, understand and address the underlying factors causing their gender pay gap. And that this in turn, in time, will make the workplace a more positive place for female employees to remain on in roles and more importantly, encourage female employees being retained and promoted into senior management positions. Insofar as this legislation will require employers to face up to their problems and address them, there's an important distinction here also. A lot of the research in this area and labour economists and occupational psychologists have been looking at this for many, many more years before employment lawyers all acknowledge that it comes down to both internal factors and external factors. Internal factors are whether the employer actually has a discriminatory practice in place which it can control itself to address this problem. But there are also external factors, which are factors perhaps across the sector which the employer cannot do a whole lot about. It's also acknowledged by most of the experts in this area that most employers will ultimately still have some degree of gender pay gap. There was some really interesting research carried out in Harvard over the past couple of years in regard to the gender pay gap amongst Uber drivers. It was assumed because the Uber app is gender neutral, insofar that nobody actually requests a male or female driver, that there wouldn't be any gender pay gap between male and female drivers in the Uber data pool. However, when they ran the numbers, the gap was 7%, which I think was about 4% behind the US average, which made no sense at all, at least until they looked at it. And when they drilled into the data, what they found was there were a number of gender-related features which were far beyond the employer's control which were driving this. One of the main factors that was identified was that 
statistically was proven within the data pool, the male drivers were completing the journeys faster than the female drivers. As a result, they were effectively more productive, could complete more journeys each day and therefore collect more fares. There were other factors related to childcare, the hours that female employees and drivers were prepared to work or could work, which also impacted on this. But it publicised the conclusion that there are factors at play that even the most progressive and interventionist employer simply can't address. We ran an article on this Uber research last summer, actually, so I'll include a link to it in the podcast. Let's turn now to the nuts and bolts of the Irish legislation and how it will work. Once it is signed into law, it will immediately apply to all employers with 250 employees or more. On the last count, there are roughly 510 employers in Ireland only that have that many employees or more. So it's actually not a huge pool. However, most of these employers are the international employers in Ireland in the tech, financial services and pharma sectors and a lot of the Irish PLCs. So there will be a huge amount of hype and media attention on this when it happens, as we saw in the UK. Within two years of the legislation being introduced, this threshold will reduce down to 150 employees and then 12 months later it will reduce again to 50 employees. On the current timetable, I would expect this legislation to be passed by quarter four of this year. However, the legislation then requires implementing regulations which set out further detail around the nuts and bolts of how you calculate it, etc. Let's allow for six months for those regulations to be drawn up and another six months for a lead-in period so employers have time to get ready once they know the makeup of the calculations. So on that basis, I think the earliest point at which any employer under Irish law will be required to disclose their data is going to be Q4 2020. We'll talk about that particular date later on, but for now, that's the legislative timetable as I see it. The next question, of course, is what information will employers be required to produce when the legislation takes effect? In its simplest form, on Disclosure Day, employers will be required to provide a statement confirming the following. The mean and median gap in hourly pay between men and women as a percentage. The mean and median gap in bonus pay between men and women, again as a percentage. And the mean and median gap in hourly pay of part-time male and female employees as a percentage. And just to recap, mean is the average and median is the midpoint between the lowest salary and the highest salary. The regulations will also require employers to provide details on the percentage of men and women who receive bonus pay and the percentage of men and women who receive benefits in kind. One defect with this legislation is it's seen as a blunt instrument. It doesn't compare like with like. It's a rough average of all male employees and all female employees in the same organisation. So it's not always a fair reflection on the extent to which an employer may be engaging in discriminatory practices. The only nod to this in the legislation is that the regulations will probably require employers to provide details of the percentage of male and female employees in each quartile within the organisation, the bottom 25% of employees, the top 25% of employees, etc. Again, it's a blunt instrument, but it will give some degree of comparison. As a nod to this, the regulations will probably require employers to provide details on the percentage of male and female employees in each quartile. So to explain that, it will require the employer to explain the percentage of male and female employees in the bottom 25% of earners in the organisation, the next 25% and so on. I expect most employers, if it goes this far, will provide the gender pay gap in each quartile. So employers and employees looking at this can get a better sense of the extent to which this is an overall discriminatory practice 
or the figure is just driven by the vast range in the salary range from the lowest to the highest. Likewise, it's proposed that employers will be required to provide some degree of information in regard to the job classification. Now, we need to understand that in a lot more detail and see what it looks like, because that of itself could be a huge task for employers. In my experience, the majority of private sector employers don't have any sort of comprehensive grading or benchmarking structure in place. So if they are required to classify jobs for comparison purposes, this will be a huge task. One area where the Irish legislation seems to go further than the UK model and the US model is that it actually requires employers not only to provide their figures, but also to explain the reasons for the figures and the plan of action it has in place to address this. So to be blunt about it, it not only requires you to confess your sins, but you must also explain why you committed those sins and what you plan to do to repent. In my experience, again, of working with clients who've been through this in the UK and the US, very few large employers actually just provide the number. Most employers will go one step further, will want to provide a narrative or context to explain the numbers. Otherwise, the numbers could be extremely misleading. So it'll be interesting to see to what extent does this Irish requirement restrict that or actually support employers in providing the most positive presentation they can on the numbers. For those of you who will actually be tasked with working out these calculations, the real question here is, how do you prepare these numbers? And there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered. We will have to wait for the regulations to see how they will work. For example, do you work the average out on base salary only? Or what do you do at commission, overtime, shift premia and elements like that? These are all questions that still have to be answered. Similarly, the regulations will address the form, manner and frequency of the reporting obligations. In practice, I think the frequency will be no more than once a year because it is quite a burden on employers. And the form and manner will probably be quite similar to the UK in that there'll be a requirement for the employer to provide the detail in a statement on their website and likewise submit to a centralised government website. What we saw in the UK, however, was a whole cottage industry developing up around this in the media where a lot of journalists were gathering up the data from the different employers' websites and publishing articles and websites comparing them one against another. So you do need to be ready for that. Assuming there will be employers who simply don't comply with this legislation or not fully, the question for us to look at now is, what will happen to those employers? And in this regard, the legislation does take a novel approach. Up until this point, most Irish employment legislation proceeds on the basis that if the employer fails to comply, the employee will be able to bring a case against the employer where compensation will be available of up to two years gross remuneration. However, that's not the case here. There's no provision for compensation to be paid to employees directly. Instead, the employer may find itself in one of the following three scenarios. The WRC can appoint a designated officer to attend at the employer's premises with the right to request information to allow that designated officer check the accuracy or completeness of the employer's information. So if you're cutting corners or spinning the numbers in a particular way, the designated officer will be there to try and catch the employer out. Secondly, the Human Rights and Equality Commission, which will also have designated authority under this legislation, will be entitled to apply to the circuit court for an order against an employer that it believes is not complying, requiring that employer to comply with the legislation. And then thirdly, a concerned employee can bring an individual cause of action to the WRC. However, the only order that an adjudication officer can give is such order as is necessary in regard to compliance. It's not compensation. However, 
Having looked at how this operates in the US and the UK, the best way I can describe this is that the government is actually turning this over to the market. The market will weed out the employers that are not complying with this legislation. Because what we saw in those markets was very quickly, candidates reach a point where when they're considering one offer from an employer against another, they will look at the employer's website to see what their gender pay gap is. And it's not just female employees who are doing this. It's happening across the board. If an employer has a particularly negative gender pay gap, well, then that says something about that employer. And so it will restrict its ability to attract quality talent, particularly in senior management positions. This, in turn, will require those employers to actually face up to its gender pay gap and the underlying factors and, in turn, do something about it. So for all of these reasons, I do actually think this legislation will work to achieve its purpose of creating a much more positive workplace and environment for female employees to progress to senior management positions. It may just take time. As ever, the real question for you, as representatives of large employers in Ireland, is what does this mean for you and what can you do now to start preparing for this? I said before that the legislation probably won't require disclosure until late 2020. However, I think most large employers won't get the luxury of waiting that long. What we saw in the UK was a lot of large organisations, for strategic PR reasons, went early with their numbers. And having spoken to a large number of the international employers in Ireland, they have already been through this in the UK and the US and have run their numbers for Ireland. To give you a sense of this, I've been working with one particular Californian tech client since March of last year in getting their pay audit and numbers ready. All of these employers have a positive story to tell and will want to go early and there are a large cohort who probably will disclose the numbers by the end of this year. If you're in a sector where your main competitor has disclosed their numbers and you haven't, it may lead candidates to believe that you have something to hide or that your story is negative. Likewise, the media may well pick up on this. So I think it is going to create its own hype and momentum around this very early on. So a lot of employers are going to be forced to disclose their hand much earlier than perhaps they had planned. So how can you get ready for this now? Firstly, at its most basic level, until you run the pay audit, you're not going to get your head around the extent of gender pay gap within your organisation and the extent to which it is a problem you need to urgently address. Secondly, as a matter of housekeeping, the exercise in running the pay audit will also help you get through organising the data, talking to the people who have the data, cleansing the data, so you can get it into a format where it can be properly interrogated and assessed by the number crunchers. My experience, again, of looking at this, clients are amazed at just how long it takes to get this data in a format that they can work with. Because you won't just want to do the calculations that the regulations require you to do. You may want to go further and look for positives within this data set so that you can build up your narrative and show that the employer is taking progressive and proactive steps to address things. For example, what was your gender pay gap two or three years ago compared to what it is now, rather than just focusing on what the number is now. The next step once you've identified the gender pay gap is, of course, to identify the underlying reasons for it. Are they internal factors that you can control or are they external factors that are beyond your control? If they are internal factors, you then need to start thinking about your plan of action. What steps can you take? What I've seen clients looking at so far in this area are things like unconscious bias training, repeated equality training, looking at the recruitment methods to see to what extent are the recruitment practices leading to the gender pay gap. To give an example, one particular client found that the job descriptions they were using for senior management roles 
were discouraging internal female candidates for applying, even though some of the elements of the job description weren't actually that important. And the example the client explained to me was a senior role which the job description talked about a large amount of foreign travel. When they actually looked at it in practice, there wasn't that much foreign travel involved at all. But what they found was, in practice, it was discouraging a large number of their female candidates from applying for these roles. So once they acknowledged that it actually wasn't a significant part of the role, they removed it from the job description and found that the level of female applicants significantly increased. I think it's these type of small tweaks within organisations that are actually going to be driven by this legislation and will help achieve its objective. One other recommended step I would suggest is that you take legal advice as early as possible in this process. Now, you might say, of course, I would say that, but there's a real benefit to this. If you engage with your lawyers at an earlier stage, you may be in a position to claim legal privilege over some of the material that this process generates and the end product. That end product and the material could be particularly useful to an employee in an equal pay claim or in a sexual harassment claim or a pregnancy-related discrimination claim. And it may therefore be material that you would much rather withhold as privileged. I'm not saying that everything will be privileged, but to the extent that there is an opportunity to do some of this process in a privileged environment, you should be taking full advantage of that. And then finally, I would suggest that you stop and think about who the appropriate stakeholders are in this process so you can engage with them early on. By that I mean, for example, your finance and payroll people, the people who currently hold the data that you will need to run these calculations. Similarly, you'll need to engage with your communications and PR people because they are the people who will manage the narrative around these numbers and also the communication plan as to when you go with the disclosure, how you manage it, preparing for any negative feedback, etc. Likewise, if as part of your plan of action you decide you need to introduce a higher level of recruitment training, quality training in the workplace, etc., well then you need to engage with your training colleagues to make sure that you have the resources and the correct training in place. As you can see, there is a huge amount to this legislation and there's an awful lot of preparation work required. We'll keep you updated as this legislation develops and especially when we get to the point where we have the regulations which sets out the nuts and bolts. In the meantime, I think there's more than enough there to get you started and we will be coming back to this again and I suspect again in due course. And finally, some of you might think we have brought back the weird and wonderful cases from the earlier episodes, but what I'm about to tell you is actually true. We were delighted to find out this week that we had come second in a list of top 10 employment law podcasts available on the internet. This is probably the first prize I've won since the competitive days of Miss Melia's Spelling League when I was in fifth class, so bear with me if I'm being slightly immodest in this. For those of you who've been following this podcast series since back in 2013, thank you very much for your support and it is great to get this recognition. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.